0: Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio
1: Zanotti. Cellular hypoxia is a fundamental mechanism of injury and critical illness. The physiological and pathophysiological responses to extreme environmental challenges may be similar to responses seen in critical illness. Today, we will explore the intersection of high-altitude medicine and physiology with critical care. It's an honor to have as a guest Dr. Robert B. Schooney, who is Associate Director of ICU and Critical Care at St. Mary's Medical Center in San Francisco, is also a clinical professor of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, Department of Medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle. Dr. Schooney is a practicing intensivist with a long and distinguished academic and research career. As an educator, he has held faculty appointments at the University of Washington and at the University of California, San Diego, where he served as Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency. Dr. Shuni is a prolific author and researcher with over 100 publications. He is the co-author for the book, High Altitude Medicine and Physiology, currently in its fifth edition. His research has focused on pulmonary physiology and altitude medicine. He has been part of numerous research expeditions to locations such as Mount Everest and Denali. Since this is not enough, Dr. Shuni is also a published poet and photographer. He is known to his friends as Brownie. Brownie, welcome to Critical Matters. A real pleasure to have you here today.
0: Well, thank you. My
1: pleasure too. So I think that a, a great starting point would be just if you could share with with our listeners a little bit about your experience in Mount Everest.
0: Well, it's interesting. I people ask me how I got interested in mountains and The fact of the matter is, it's because I grew up in Ohio and there were no mountains there. And my parents made the mistake of subscribing to National Geographic magazine, where there were a bunch of things that were inspirational to a 10 year old kid, one of which was mountains. So I always wanted to go to the mountains and never had the opportunity growing up. But when I got to medical school at Columbia, There were several classmates of mine who already were fairly accomplished rock and ice climbers, so I channeled my athletic enthusiasm to them. And then after medical school, I had to move west, so I went to Seattle to train and then stayed there for many years. During my pulmonary fellowship, I was studying a lot of physiology, exercise physiology, and so forth. A man named John West, Dr. West at UCSD, a very uh, preeminent uh, pulmonary physiologist who many of us know was putting together a research expedition to Mount Everest. I had been to the Himalaya before and I was just finishing my fellowship and I figured, well, I might be a good candidate to go on this research expedition. So I, since I didn't know how to type, I hand wrote a letter, Dear Dr. West, blah, blah, blah. And, and I was fortunate enough to be chosen to go on that expedition as a climber scientist. And that really launched my enthusiasm for research and physiology. And it obviously allowed me to combine my passion for the mountains and what was going to be and has been a really fun career.
1: So in that first expedition to Everest with Dr. West, Tell us a little bit about what the the type of research you were doing, and at what altitude where where was the the lab based?
0: Yes, so this was in August. Of, we started in August of 1981, and we walked in to Everest from pretty much Kathmandu, and uh, for three weeks, which was a wonderful experience in and of itself, we set up a laboratory, uh, several laboratories, one was at base camp at about 18,000 feet where a lot of blood work, sleep studies, and things like that were done. And then we set up uh, the main laboratory at 21,000 feet above the Khumbu Icefall up in what's called the Western Coombe, this long, uh, beautiful glacier. And that laboratory at 21,000 feet is where we did all of our exercise testing, further sleep studies, nutritional studies, Um, and neuropsychometric testing as well. And then we had a lab for a short period of time up at 26,000 feet, which didn't last very long because the wind blew it away, but at 21,000 feet, we were able to do a number of studies, most of them focused on exploring the limits of performance at extreme altitude. In other words, as oxygen availability diminishes, what can the body do and how does it compensate? And that's obviously not too dissimilar to our patients, although the patients don't start out quite as healthy. And so we had a, a cycle ergometer. We made measurements of VO2 and ventilatory response and cardiac response and all done by hand in the old-fashioned way, because we didn't have all the computerization that we do now, but that's where I really, learned my physiology when my PO2 was probably in the uh, 30 uh, millimeters of mercury range and so Dr. West and Dr. Millage and Lahiri who were the senior investigators it, I just felt so lucky as a young investigator to be part of that so we we did a lot of studies at 21,000 feet where the barometric pressure is about 350 millimeters of mercury and then as we got acclimatized we did simulated higher-altitude studies, breathing first 16% oxygen, which uh, simulated the south call at 26,000 feet, and then 14% oxygen, doing maximum exercise tests at 21,000 feet, breathing 14% oxygen, which mimicked the summit of Mount Everest. And
1: and to to give our listeners a reference, uh, at the summit, the expected PO2, or it's been measured, I think, in subsequent research uh, um, uh, treks, is probably like the PAO2 is 20, 29, is that correct?
0: Yeah, it, it varies, of course, because of everybody has a little bit of a different ventilatory response. And uh, one of the things that was my area of research even before that expedition was the control of ventilation. So I hypothesized to Dr. West that there would be a spectrum of ventilatory responses uh, to the altitude, various altitudes. and Tested that in Seattle, and then we took it to Mount Everest. And so, uh, you're exactly right. There, PO2. Well, first of all, let's do a little bit of quick math for those interested in the alveolar air equation. Uh, it's the, the barometric pressure, which we measured on the summit of Everest, is about 250 millimeters of mercury. So, if you do some quick math, take away water vapor and multiply by 21%, all of that, the inspired partial pressure uh, on the summit is 43 millimeters of mercury, whereas here in San Francisco, it's 150. So you then have to put that in the alveolus. So in order to have any room in the alveolus, uh, you have to really hyperventilate a lot. So the PCO2 ranges anywhere from about 8 to 11 millimeters of mercury at rest. So then uh, that makes the alveolar PO2 about 32, and then with a alveolar arterial gradient, the PO2 uh, from arterial blood, which has been measured, is anywhere from about 19 to 26 millimeters of mercury.
1: Now, one of the things that has always struck me, Brownie, when, when I've never been to Everest, but when I read about these studies is uh, the ability to tolerate these degrees of hypoxemia. And obviously, like you mentioned, these are uh, healthy uh, climbers who are up there. But it also tells us, I think, something when we see a sat in the ICU of 85%, uh, 89% and the response that people might have. You wanna dive into that a little bit and talk about that?
0: Yeah, that's really actually one of my uh, (laughs) uh, bugaboos, so to speak, in the ICU. And there are a lot of good data which show now that we're able to measure gene signaling with HIF-1-alpha and then all the transcription of EPO and VEGF and all of those downstream genes, that that stimulation from hypoxia is important to uh, start those cascade of events which protect against oxygen. And what we end up doing, I think, uh, is give people in the ICU way too much oxygen. the therapist and the nurses, oh, the saturation's, you know, 90%. Well, that's perfectly fine. And so, but your point is a good one because everybody, including healthy climbers and patients, adapt differently at different rates and to a different extent. And I think one of the things about human physiology that's so fascinating is that the the bell-shaped curve Uh, physiologic responses, whatever they may be, whether it's the ventilatory response to hypoxia, secretion of insulin, all of those things, is pretty broad because we as humans have been able to sort of beat the physical game to a certain degree. If you're a cheetah or an antelope and you have a broad bell-shaped curve and you're slow, you're going to starve or be eaten. So uh, humans, on the other hand, have this variability and it's, That's why people get pulmonary hypertension at certain levels of PO2 and others don't, and the same thing with patients in the ICU. Now, the the, the thing, too, you have to keep in mind is that the acuity of the exposure to the hypoxia and subsequent hypoxemia uh, varies quite a bit, and uh, each of us adapts or acclimatizes at a different rate. So some patients with acute hypoxemia will be much more altered, either in terms of their cardiac response, their mental acuity and so forth, than others to even acutely adapt better. And that's one of the things, uh, lesson from high altitude that I think is very important in healthy people is that translates to realizing that patients are different. And rather than just following protocols or algorithms, If you approach every patient, whether it's in the ICU or in your clinic, with the curiosity of where they are on the bell-shaped curve, you're a much better physician.
1: And I think that the point that not only individuals have a response that could, could, could be quite different, but also just in terms of temporal responses, there's a big difference what happens acutely and what happens chronically as we're exposed to hypoxemia. And that's true for climbers and healthy human beings as for patients, I would imagine could you tell us a little bit about i'm sorry go ahead no i was just gonna
0: say that's a a very important point you're absolutely right that and even some of the world's great climbers for instance take a while to acclimatize and once they acclimatize they obviously are performing at the top of the world so to speak Uh, whereas others acclimatize much more quickly and that's the same thing for patients and i think the one of the things we did on Everest is we also looked at neuropsychometric testing, and uh, which we ended up getting published in the New England Journal because, again, there was a spectrum of responses and adaptation to these severe degrees of hypoxemia. And uh, that, that carries right over to patient care.
1: And I think that from a, from a medical perspective at high altitude, and we can – talk a little bit more about this next. It, also, there are, there's a spectrum of diseases of those exposed to acute or acu- acute hypoxemia or high altitude, and then there's a, probably a spectrum of changes or quote-unquote diseases that have been studied in people who have lived at high altitude for very long times. So, c- can we talk a little bit about the, the, the mechanisms of injury or some of the common clinical uh, scenarios that we see in high altitude, such as acute mountain sickness, uh, high-altitude cerebral edema, and high-altitude pulmonary edema, and maybe just talk about them clinically and then what correlations you have learned uh, that can be applied to the ICU? Yes. Um, People
0: who go to high altitude, again, will have varying susceptibilities to uh, the altitude illnesses that you mentioned. Acute mountain sickness, for instance, is pretty common. And I did a sabbatical years ago in Colorado, looking at a more moderate altitude of nine and ten thousand feet and we were studying people who came there to go skiing from you know Atlanta or l a or some low altitude area and There was a fairly high incidence of acute bound sickness. it is uh frustrating a headache is sort of the main symptom lethargy, loss of appetite and uh, for instance, people who climb Mount Rainier, which used to be in my backyard in Seattle, uh, two-thirds of the people who climb that get acute mountain sickness. And it is something that is relatively short-lived and usually goes away with uh, just time at altitude. And on something like Mount Rainier, which people go up and climb in a couple of days, they can usually get to the summit and get down without be- getting um, worse Altitude illnesses. So acute mountain sickness is quite common. Many people who go on treks or skiing uh, vacations, and so forth, uh, think they're hungover when, in fact, it's acute mountain sickness. The key thing there is to just try to take it easy for a couple of days until the symptoms go away, and uh, it's pretty self-limited. The two more, uh, I guess, dangerous types of altitude illness are, as you mentioned, high-altitude pulmonary edema and cerebral edema. High-altitude pulmonary edema usually occurs a little bit higher than acute mountain sickness, although I've seen it as low as 8,000 feet, but it's more common at 10 to 12,000 feet, often incurred uh, on weekend climbs of mountains in Colorado and so forth, or people trekking in the Andes or the Himalaya. It is uh, something we studied on Denali back in the 1980s. And we were doing studies at the University of Washington looking at ARDS using lung lavage to look at cellular and uh, vascular response and so forth. And so we went up to Denali to do the same type of bronchoscopy and alveolar lavage in climbers who develop high-altitude pulmonary edema. High altitude pulmonary edema is associated with those people who end up getting higher degrees of pulmonary hypertension when they go to altitude. That was something that was hypothesized and then proved by Herb Holteren back in the 60s and 70s, a Stanford cardiologist. And so what we did is compare our lavage data, both in ourselves. We did bronchoscopies on ourselves in a tent at 14,000 feet. Took that lavage fluid, spun it down and studied, and then took the rest of it down to the University of Washington to look at all the cytokines and uh, the vascular mediators and so forth. And then we did the same thing to climbers who came to our camp at 14,000 feet and did lung lavage on them. What was very interesting was the uh, protein leak in these people the high pulmonary edema was as high, if not higher, than what we found in ARDS in Seattle at Harborview Medical Center. So these people are sick. It is initially a non-inflammatory leak. Mm-hmm. So we learned no one had ever done this before, as you might imagine. But we were, we know that in ARDS you get inflammation and just sort of a potpourri of, of diffuse vascular injury, and permeability leak. At high altitude, the initial part of the lung leak is very high in protein, associated with pulmonary hypertension, but it's not inflammatory. So that was something that uh, many people, particularly the uh, pulmonary edema people around the world were very interested in. So that was one situation where we were able to compare uh, ARDS patients in the ICU with otherwise healthy but pretty sick climbers at 14,000 feet.
1: Brownie, and how how does so I, I would presume that if you are a if you if you develop high altitude pulmonary edema, you either get treated and things uh, are brought down to a lower altitude and things get better over over a couple of days, or you end up dying if that doesn't happen. But you probably don't have patients who've had the high-altitude pulmonary edema for a week or more. Is that correct?
0: That's pretty much uh, true. Uh, The treatment of high-altitude pulmonary edema
1: is indeed
0: uh, not to go higher, obviously. On Denali, all we had was supplemental oxygen which we put them on for uh, during the period of time we were studying them, and then we helped them uh, descend. And d- descent is very important. We were at 14,000 feet. We could have them descend to like 10,000 feet, which made a huge difference. They, All of them recovered. The, um, the other issue is that because there's an association of Piloted pulmonary edema with, with accentuated pulmonary hypertension. Uh, a group in Europe, led by Peter Berch from Heidelberg, did a study of uh, European climbers in the Alps, where they had a laboratory on Monte Rosa at 15,000 feet. And he hypothesized that by pre treating these individuals with a pulmonary vasodilator, which in those days was primarily nifedipine, he could. Uh, Minimize the rise in pulmonary artery pressures and prevent hate. And in fact, that's what he found. And so, and that was published in the New England Journal that Jack Reeves and I wrote the editorial for. It was a wonderful example of a clinical observation, a physiologic correlation, and then a study to prove the hypothesis in the field. So that. Uh, And we had done swan-gans catheterizations on our lab in McKinley, and also as echoes got better, we were able to do echoes. And so I think what we were doing is taking the ICU to altitude and then taking that information and those data back to the ICU.
1: Nice. And in terms of uh, another question, I I think uh, relating the initial response or the the initial injury seems to be a vascular response to hypoxia. Is that pulmonary hypertension caused by a severe vasoconstriction? Is that what's occurring initially with uh, the response to the the, the hypoxia?
0: Yes, yes, and that, uh, again, it wasn't really until 1960 that HAPE, or high-altitude pulmonary edema, was recognized as a high-altitude entity occurring in otherwise healthy people. Before that, because it occurred before that, it was thought to be pneumonia, or congestive heart failure, and so forth. So, uh, But Herb Haltren, as I mentioned, a cardiologist from Stanford, loved doing high-altitude work, and he went down to South America and did work on the American Rockies, and he, he thought that it, there's a relationship. So he did a lot of right heart catheterizations in people who had been predisposed to high-altitude pulmonary edema, and that's he was absolutely right. And so it is the more intense pulmonary vascular response to hypoxia in these people that leads to increased pressures, precapillary pressures, and leak into the interstitium and into the alveoli. And it's a patchy response. Uh, Some alveoli are better ventilated than others, so that response of the vasculature to that area will be more intense or less intense. So again, I think it correlates very well with what we see in patients with pulmonary hypertension or patients even with ARDS.
1: So, radiographically, it resembles ARDS in a diffuse patchy infiltrate. Are there any uh, studies with CTs uh, showing a predilection for the back basillary areas?
0: Yes, yes there are. The uh, European group, (coughs) I think the first author is Volk, V-O-L-K, a German investigator who also worked in the Alps, Uh, He has a a couple of studies looking at CT scans in people with hate, and it's it's exactly that. It's uh, just patchy and some areas that look good, other areas that have, obviously, opacities.
1: So is there a difference, uh, Brownie, in terms of providing just oxygen without lowering the altitude, or do you have to bring them to a lower altitude to get them better?
0: Yeah, that, that was often debated because the question is, is it the barometric pressure or is it the oxygen per se? You don't need to get them to descend. I think one of the things on when I was on sabbatical in Colorado in the early 90s, the standard of care for high-altitude physicians practicing in those communities when they got somebody with high-altitude pulmonary edema, they almost always sent them down to Denver usually by helicopter or ambulance. Um, What we took there in 90 cents, based on our experience on Denali, is that they didn't need to do that for almost all the folks. In other words, giving them oxygen, keeping them at nine and 10,000 feet under observation and, and obviously being prudent, but doing that was certainly adequate enough. What happens, and we saw this on Denali, uh, the PA pressures drop, of course, with oxygen. It's a good pulmonary vasodilator. And then the lymphatics go to work and pick up the edema. Even overnight, within 24 to 36 hours, the patients are much better. So in most folks who are not severely ill with HAPE at moderate altitude, oxygen is adequate.
1: And I think it's a, it's an interesting uh, a, a analogy with what we see in, critical, in critically ill patients acutely. A lot of what we're trying to do is improve oxygen delivery, whether it be by increasing how we provide oxygen, increasing delivery. And uh, the problem is that over time with ARDS, that might not be enough. Is not what really kills them. But that seems to be the case here. The initial response is really provide them with more oxygen, and that will probably relieve or help mitigate that pulmonary hypertension and start turning things around. Is that correct?
0: That, that is correct. And since uh, Peter Berch's study, the one I mentioned with nifedipine, as you know, there are a number of other pulmonary vasodilators, a lot of people are adding those pulmonary vasodilators to their armamentarium of treatment. It's probably not necessary, but certainly uh, not harmful, and it, it sort of follows the, the thesis of trying to decrease the pulmonary artery pressure, so oxygen, nifedipine in any of the other newer pulmonary vasodilators are being used, but uh, oxygen is still perfectly fine.
1: And in in these the studies that you had performed in patients with with HAP, as the disease continues and progresses, does that BAL become inflammatory at one point? Is there a switch in the in the in the nature of the disease?
0: Yes, that's a uh, very good point. Our initial lavage studies. Uh, We couldn't time exactly when we got these subjects or these climbers who were sick. Uh, We got them when they were sick, and it could be a day after they got sick or a couple days after they began to get sick. So our initial lavage studies that were uh, two studies, one was published in JAMA and the other was in the Journal of Applied Physiology, showed an inflammatory response. uh, Leukotriene before... Uh, all the arachidonic acid cascade were present. And there were mostly, interestingly though, mostly macrophages and very few uh, neutrophils. So Eric Swenson, uh, who came up to Denali uh, from the University of Washington, very dear friend of mine, he sort of took that thesis and later did a study in the Alps with Peter Berch. And they took, sort of these hapless European climbers who were predisposed to hate, took them up to the Rosa hut, and as soon as they started to get sick, he did bronchoscopy and lavage and found that it was not inflammatory. So it was a wonderful study that looked at the mechanism a little bit more thoroughly than we could do in the field. So the the point is that this is initially a hydrostatic high-protein leak that with the presence of the protein probably in the interstitium and the alveolus Incites chemotaxis and inflammation.
1: Which is probably exactly what happens in many of our patients with different types of ARDS, whether it be an aspiration with a chemical pneumonitis initially and then turns into inflammatory or a negative pressure type of pulmonary edema and somebody has a severe laryngospasm. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. Brownie, is there any other lessons that we've learned from HAPE in terms of treatment? I know that at one point people had tried steroids. There's also some, I I, I think, some literature on using beta agonists that have been uh, translated or tried to be translated into ARDS. Any comments on other therapies that maybe failed?
0: Yeah, there are a couple of things. Some of of the early studies, there was a, a big new journal study years ago by an Indian investigator who was looking at the uh, soldiers up on the Indian-Pakistan border many years ago, and they saw at 19,000 feet a lot of altitude of illness. He wrote and described these folks in the early 60s, and they were using Lasix. Probably not a good thing to do because these people are pretty volume depleted anyway, and so you're adding uh, another insult, I think, to the hemodynamics of hate. So nobody uses that. The steroid question—it's also been—they've um, been used, and probably ironically, dexamethasone, which is uh, a medication that's often used for high-altitude cerebral edema, which is very effective for that, may have some salutatory effect in HAPE, but again, uh, not very well shown. Uh, although a lot of people do use it. And then you also mentioned beta agonists. The uh, uh, the beta-agonist story is interesting, maybe not a very practical one, but Claudio Sartori, Italy, when he was over here at UCSF, either doing a fellowship or something, he was doing a lot of work in pulmonary edema, and beta-agonist increased alveolar fluid clearance through the sodium-potassium ATPH pump on the epithelial lining. So he tested uh, high doses of salmeterol to... Uh, hape susceptible individuals in the Alps. And he showed too he could minimize or prevent hape, probably by increasing alveolar fluid clearance. The that's oh you know, some people use it, it's certainly not harmful. It's not really a, a frontline medication for hate.
1: And that has been translated into the ARDS realm uh without i would say great success but in the initial studies there was some promise but it hasn't really panned through to something that i think we use on a, on a regular basis but it probably came from those observations correct one of the the myths i think that are commonly uh, believed by by lay people or people who are not exposed to altitude very commonly is that if you're going to go and climb you you need to be you need to get really really fit but the reality is that you can be very fit and get into a lot of trouble just because of the genes you have. Is that correct?
0: That's a, a great point. People say, well, I'm going to go get fit. Now, first of all, it it does help to be fit. And the, the reason that is, one, it makes the adventure a little bit more enjoyable, and it also adds a safety factor because if you get – in a storm and you need to get off the mountain you've got to be fit. you've got to have speed now having said that being fit will not prevent you from getting altitude illness and in fact what's interesting is I think the fitter people are the faster and higher they go uh, with lack of acclimatization the more likely they are to get one of the altitude illnesses so uh, fitness is great to have but it really doesn't prevent you from getting any of the altitude illnesses.
1: And in terms of uh, what, what can be mitigated, obviously, is like you said, the rate of ascent and acclimatization, which as you pointed out in your first expedition, you climb to base camp over three weeks, but people probably sometimes do even longer <clears throat> periods in order to prepare for higher altitudes. But uh, can you talk a little bit about what we have found about specific uh, genotypes or genetic predispositions to tolerance to altitude? At to tolerance to hypoxia well, there, and altitude.
0: Uh, right. There's um, there's a fair amount of work going on in that arena right now. I'm not involved in it, but I certainly go to the meetings. And uh, the Chinese actually are one of the leading groups doing all kinds of genetic uh, studies, looking at uh, gene types and phenotypes and so forth. There are some some genes that are associated with High-altitude pulmonary edema, the ACE gene is one of them, and then there are a whole bunch of others that are sort of uh, number and word gibberish, letter gibberish, that are being associated, and most of them appear to be related to the pulmonary vascular response. Uh, the other altitude illnesses such as cerebral edema, which is usually encountered at even higher altitudes, which can be fatal, um, I don't think there's been much work on that. What, what's also very interesting is uh, looking at high altitude populations and what's fascinating is that if you look at what's called chronic mountain sickness and that is really it was described in the andes and the markers of it are polycythemia pulmonary hypertension eventually right heart failure mental dulling and so forth is Common, or it's about 15% of the people in the Andes living at 13 to 15,000 feet have this chronic mountain sickness. And I, we studied it uh, years ago. In fact, I studied one one fellow with a hematocrit of 91%. Wow. And so there's some disinhibition of the erythropoietic response in these folks, and a lot, a number of genetic studies that uh, are going on looking at that. But what's really interesting. It does not exist in Tibetans, and the Han Chinese who have been sent to Tibet uh, get this chronic mountain sickness, whereas the incidence in uh, native Tibetans is about 1% or less. You don't see it in Ethiopia. So if you adhere to the fact that we as humans sort of began in East Africa, migrated north into Europe, but crossed uh, the Middle East, across the Tibetan Plateau, down into Asia, up into Asia, and across the North and South America, these human populations have been deposited in those various areas in a chronology that suggests that, for instance, the Tibetans have been there much longer than the Andean high-altitude natives and have thus adapted much better. They do not have pulmonary hypertension in Tibet. The Tibetans stone. Whereas, again, as I mentioned, in South America, it's very, very prevalent. So it's almost evolution, uh, just viewing evolution and process, because um, uh, over the tens and hundreds of thousands of years, it looks like the genetic uh, adaptation is is very real.
1: That that is fascinating. And as you were explaining that, I was actually thinking – is there a difference in how long they've been living at altitude? And obviously th- there is, and that probably relates to, to evolution. And maybe – it's. I guess it's like climbers. Most of the very, very accomplished climbers probably have a good genetic predisposition to, to our tolerance of altitude because otherwise they wouldn't become very great climbers. And uh, – uh, That's the, right. <laughs> the, the other question I, I – I, I always I, say <laughs> – Go ahead.
0: I was just going to say – If you want to go to the Olympics, if you want to win a Nobel Prize, if you want to climb in the Himalaya, you have
1: to choose your parents very well. Exactly. So I I was going to ask you a similar question. Uh, If you want to survive ARDS, are your parents that important?
0: Well, it it is interesting. There are some uh, genetic studies looking at predisposition to ARDS, and the literature has uh, a number of. People who have gotten repeat episodes of ARDS, and uh, right up the hill here at UCSF, they've been looking at some of those people. Michael Mathay and the group uh, uh, here have been trying to look at some genetic predisposition to find some markers, and they—I think—they have found some things that are suggestive that there's a predisposition uh, to ARDS.
1: So, would it be fair to say that if you have uh, the genes that are associated? with a, a higher frequency of having HAPE or other high-altitude um, injuries, it's probably likely that you would do worse with if you got a, the same intensity RDS than a, a high-accomplished climber who obviously has uh, shown to have the predisposition not to have those problems. Is that something that's been looked at?
0: In answer to your question, I know. However, your thought is interesting in that there may be those who – uh, are predisposed to high altitude pulmonary edema that may be predisposed to ARDS, or if they get ARDS, have a more severe. Again, the pulmonary vascular response is so important in hate and I'm not sure it's a primary uh, catalyst for for ARDS per se. It may be a post facto one, but I don't know. I, no one's looked at that.
1: Well, I think that clearly. Uh, um, the- Exposure to, hypo, uh, to low oxygen at high altitudes has provided a, a great laboratory for us to, to explore and understand responses to hypoxia and try to bring those down to, to the ICU and understand a little bit more about what happens to our patients. But I think that um, I'm also very interested, Brownie, in the, some of the lessons that you've learned of working in these harsh environments in terms of professionalism, teamwork that you could bring back to the ICUs today.
0: Yes, I think that this is something I think about a lot. First of all, feel very fortunate to have had these experiences, but it really comes down to teamwork. And obviously, on an expedition like Everest or on Denali, where the conditions are harsh and you have a diverse group of people there, I will say that John West chose an excellent group to go to Mount Everest, where... You can read about expeditions where people quibble and they fight and so forth. This was a very harmonious expedition because I think people weren't there just to climb the mountain because very few people had climbed it in 1981. They were there to try to climb it, which we which we did and luck, we're lucky to do, but we were there to have another part of the mission, and that was to do the research. Many of us are still very close, dear friends, and the others have just gone to other parts of life. We don't intersect. But... It That to me, coming back from that expedition, I just felt so lucky. You know, I was a young investigator, so to speak, just beginning my academic career and just starting my years in at, the at, at Harborview ICU in Seattle. I just felt so lucky. And what I what I say, a leader is one who treats everybody the same. For instance, John West chose very carefully what I think was a great group of people, and then. He let each of us do our duty, run with the ball, and he trusts us. What that means is that each of us upped the ante for our responsibility to each other and to our individual jobs, and we grew because of it, and the whole endeavor was successful. For instance, again, I was just a, a young kid, so to speak, and John called me a couple times, but he called me once and said, could you put all the food together for Mount Everest? And I'm thinking, oh my God, but that's the only call I got. And then he called me later and said, you've been doing some work in the control of ventilation uh, and you wrote a paper on a hypothesis of high altitude. Uh, could you continue that work on our expedition? That's the only call I got on that. And that's what a leader does. You get good people, you give them the responsibility, you don't micromanage, and you're there for each other, and everybody's treated with respect. And also camaraderie and teamwork. That's what a good ICU does as well. And by treating everybody the same, the thing that has always bothered me is that the echelons of the historic authorities of physicians, nurses, therapists, and so forth, I've always been uncomfortable with that. I think, The nurses have been there, that's their career, that's their job. They are just as important as we are and if you treat them with respect, they up the ante for their performance. You're you're a better team, you communicate. The same with therapists. And the most important person in the ICU is usually the ward clerk. And that person is also just as important. So as a leader, I think you don't micromanage. You get good people, treat them with respect, have camaraderie, and the endeavor, whether it's on Mount Everest or Denali or in the ICU, is much more successful. And plus, I just love the camaraderie. I love people. I love the people I work with and the whole group. And so I think that that's really critical. The other thing from these high-altitude expeditions to foreign countries and so forth is you learn so much about Culture and other people. And you see that in the ICU. You have such a diverse group of patients and families. And again, never judge your patient. Everybody's sick, they're scared, and that fear may manifest itself as anger, drunkenness, gratitude, uh, passivity, whatever it may be. But if you treat everybody the same, make no judgment, people see that, your team sees that. And again, the endeavor is much more successful. I mean, that's, I, I so strongly believe in that uh, credo, so to speak, that uh, I feel very lucky to have worked with teams, and a lot of it was uh, sort of an example over on these high altitude expeditions.
1: And I think that uh, those are phenomenal, phenomenal insights. And I think of three. Uh, recurrent themes in terms of high-performing teams, in terms of creating a culture that's really of of a successful intensive care unit that you mentioned. And the first one is shared purpose. When the leaders can really uh, express and make everybody see the shared purpose of the mission, I think everybody is significantly more uh, engaged and cohesive, and that is something that I think sometimes we forget why we are in the ICU and what is our shared purpose. Number two, I think what you talked about uh, as Dr. West as the leader, I always say that if you have a leader and follower, at the best you get compliance. If you have a leader and multiple leaders, you'll get engagement. And the idea of giving people the power to do their best, and that I think ultimately leads to the third, which is the basis of all this, which is respect of each other and what everybody brings to the table. That uh, That is phenomenal, phenomenal insight. I usually uh, close with uh, three questions not related to medicine. Um, I'm all, uh-huh. almost almost inclined to stop here because that that those insights were so powerful. But I think we'll go ahead and do it as well if that's okay with you, Brownie. Sure, you bet. So the first question is, what book or books have influenced you the most, or what book have you gifted most often to others?
0: Yeah, well, there are, of course. Uh, Tons of books I've really liked, but there are maybe three arenas. One is, is Adventure and Altitude. And so there are two books that I have, have influenced me and that I've also given to many people. One is called Everest the West Ridge, written by Tom Hornbein, H O R N B E I N. He was a member of the 1963 American Everest Expedition. He then went on to a very illustrious academic career in anesthesiology at the University of Washington. So I got to know Tom very well, and he sort of took me under his wing and mentored me. In fact, I just talked with him this morning. He's in his mid-80s now, and he's still out climbing. The, The words of wisdom that he brought from his expedition where he climbed the West Ridge and his insights, that's a phenomenal book. Another one is Endurance by Alfred Lansing. It's, of course, the story of the Ernest Shackleton expedition to Antarctica back in the 19 teens. That is a, a wonderful, mesmerizing read. And Shackleton has come down over the years as probably one of the greatest leaders of all time because he took these people down there. They got into trouble. Their ship got locked into ice. And... 19 members of that expedition, all the trials and tribulations, largely through his leadership, returned to England. That's a great book. I've given that book to a number of people. I also am a great fan of poetry and Pablo Neruda, the great Chilean Nobel Prize winning poet, has a number of volumes of many, many, but I I really have given volumes to, to many people. The, the other category are more contemporary, but also books that are very relevant that are bestsellers, actually, that I'm sure many of uh, the listeners have read. One is uh, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, and um, just about the dignity of life and the dignity at the end of life. It, it's, if, if people haven't read it, that I've given to a number of people because we deal with that every day and we deal with it in ourselves, having dignity at the end of life, but that's also an important part of life. And the other one is, uh, and I'm blocking on the author's name, but it's it too is a recent book called called When Breath Becomes Air. And that is a a book written by a, a young neurosurgeon who for some reason came down with lung cancer. And it's the story of the beginning of his career, but also his dying of that cancer, it is just heartrending. Uh, but those are the books, uh, along with many others. But the ones that I oh, well, there's one other called Touching the Void uh, by Joe Simpson. It's it's a mountain climbing book in, in the Andes. That's another one that is just spellbinding.
1: And I think that the the common theme where you are on Everest reading poetry from Pablo Neruda, or reading Being Mortal or When Breath Becomes Air, is that they all speak to our human nature and to the same uh, challenges and questions that remain over time. Those never change. And I think that uh, uh, that is probably what's most important on a daily basis for us to remember. So uh, these are great, great reads. I've read uh, several of them, not all of them, but I definitely will pick up the ones that I have not. So the second question, Brownie, is what do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe?
0: Well, I think one of the things – well, let me pick this one out. I, my, uh, as I mentioned at the onset, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and my father was a professor in the Department of Medicine at Ohio State. And one of his best friends was chief of surgery, Dr. Robert Zollinger. Uh, who described Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. And Zollinger was one of these old-fashioned, you know, fire-breathing surgeons, but he was a brilliant, wonderful man. And he sort of followed my career and kept writing me letters as I was in college and medical school. And he'd read my publications. He'd say, oh, you should be a surgeon. It's not too late. You should be a surgeon. So um, a number of years later, in the middle of my academic career, I went back to Columbus and I called him. He was in his 80s then and i said dr Zollinger, sir this is brownie Shaney. i'd i'd love to come over and say hello and so forth so he said oh yeah come on over so he and i sat down and chatted for a couple of hours in his in his den and one of the things he said was throughout your career you need to make changes and at that point in you know, ramping up my academic career i didn't really know what he meant but he said I was chair of med- or chair of surgery for many years at Ohio State, but even within that role, I changed every five to ten years my focus. The reason I did that: one, that was my nature, but secondly, it kept me growing and learning and invested in a career that I have loved. And so, a couple of years after that, I had opportunities to make some changes, and and I've continued to do that. And so, I, I, I think. A lot of people, well, I'm going to be an assistant professor, an associate professor, full professor, and chair of something at University of such and such. And people do that, and that's very admirable, but they don't believe that it's important to change. And I think, um, I hope that young trainees now will be as excited about what they're doing as I am now many years later. And I think one of the things that uh, the comrades, patients, science, all those things play a role, but it's also trying to make changes to to keep you really uh, motivated and learning.
1: Absolutely. And I think that it's fascinating because one of the things that a topic that I've thought about um, a lot lately is uh, the dichotomy of change in terms that a lot of what's happening to the medical professional uh, in terms of burnout relates to the change around them. Yet the antidote to all that is for us to keep changing and growing. And uh, I think that it, it's a very interesting uh, a, a, a thought. But that is great, great advice from a surgeon. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, Zollinger was was quite something.
1: And the last question, uh, Brownie, is what would you want every intensivist who listens to this podcast uh, to know?
0: I would want that person to know when they don't know. And I've always told, you know, house officers or colleagues, that the thing that I like to hear the most from my students, my residents, my senior professors, whoever they may be is, wow, I don't know, but let's find out. And I think that by saying that, it means they have confidence in what they're doing. They have confidence in their enthusiasm to want to know. But if they if they don't know, and they pull the wool over somebody's eyes, some patient's gonna get hurt. And I think that it's hard. It's, let's say you're a third year student, and you're on your medicine rotation. There's a lot of pressure. There's your chief resident, and there's your attending, and they're asking you questions, and God, you wanna know all the answers, and you don't. And to start the habit of saying, I don't know, but let's find out, is is so honest and so important for the integrity of um, commitment to your patients and to your colleagues. So in, in answer to your question, what do I want Intentifists to know? I want to know when they don't know, or I want them to know when they don't know, and but have the enthusiasm and motivation to find out.
1: I think uh, it's a great, great advice. Vulnerability to be able to say, I don't know, and really having that desire to understand. It's not about the right yeah. answers, but the right questions. And I think that's a, a perfect place to, to, to end. Brownie, it was a true pleasure to have you on the podcast. We'll have you back soon, uh, exploring other topics related to physiology and, uh, and exercise. So again, thank you very much for your time. My
0: pleasure and my honor, too. Thank you, Sergio. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play.